Hello, I'm Shah Dabari and I'm one of the fellows of the Forum for Philosophy at LSE Philosophy. Welcome to this event called Spaced Out. We're delighted to have you and we're looking forward to hearing from you too. So often our events at the Forum are about lived philosophy, a real experience placed in an intellectual context, but I can hardly think of an event that we have run that feels more real right now than this one. In fact, I suspect every one of you watching and listening has had to navigate the question of space in a post-pandemic world this very day. The social distancing brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic has transformed the way we move through parks, streets and supermarkets. It's emptied workplaces. In fact, here I am talking to you over Facebook Live and Zoom rather than one of our customary theatres in the LSE in London's Hoban. But it's also paralysed our theatres and it might even result in the exodus of our major cities. How then do we start to plan for the public and private spaces of the future? And how will human beings continue to share space? I think our expert panellists might have some thoughts to help us make sense of those difficult questions. Now we're going to be talking together for about 45 minutes or so and then we'll hand over to you for questions. So if you do have a question please type them into the chat box as we go along. They'll get sent to me and I'll do my best to pose them to our panel on your behalf and we'll look forward to that. So let me introduce you to our panel. Dr. Katie Bezik is a writer and academic. She's a senior lecturer in drama at the University of Exeter. Her research interests include performance on and about council estates, representations of female desire and street performance culture. One of her newest projects, postponed by COVID-19 sadly, is Subway Sounds, which explores subway culture through sound in a variety of places, including New York and Hong Kong. Dr. Julia King is a research fellow at LSE Cities, and she also runs a design studio at Central St. Martins. She's the coordinator for numerous research projects, including Streets for All, commissioned by the Greater London Authority, and a project on urban governance in India. She's also the founder and director of the Apprenticeship Programme in City Design at LSE Cities, an outreach programme for young adults from London to learn through practice. She trained as an architect and her work thinks about sanitation and housing in the context of urbanisation and inequality. And her work has been exhibited internationally, including at the 2016 Venice Architectural Biennale, the South Bank Centre and Somerset House. And Professor Antoine Picon is the G. Ware Travelstead Chair in the History of Architecture and Technology at Harvard University. He trained as an engineer, architect and historian and now teaches the history and theory of architecture and technology. He's particularly interested in the relations between society, technology and utopia from the 18th century to the present. Hello, Katie, Julia and Antoine. Hello. It's great um, to have you. Hello. hello. This is such a huge topic. I feel quite daunted, actually. There's lots of ground for us to cover, but it also feels very urgent. And I want to try to get a sense of your thinking before we drill down into some of the details. So, Katie, let me start with you, because even before the pandemic, you're someone who has been thinking about social justice and space. So tell me how, to your mind, the pandemic has illuminated the inequalities around access to space. Thanks, Shahida. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I've obviously been thinking a lot about how COVID has played out as a spatial phenomenon and the ways that relates to questions of what we might call social justice or inequality. Um, and I think I've probably got about three points to make about it. So firstly, I think that we can see issues of inequality really clearly 
in the everyday, in the way that public spaces have been controlled and regulated throughout the pandemic, and in the psychological and emotional value that private spaces have suddenly accrued. So I'm thinking particularly about gardens and the inequality of access to leisure space, which is obviously symptomatic of wider inequalities and injustices. And just the simple fact, you know, that lockdown was bearable or is bearable if you've got a garden or a local green space shows that there's these levels of inequality that play out in our access to spaces. So um, home for some people has emerged as a place of safety, a place where you can shield from the virus that's circulating outside. But for other people, home is place of danger um it's dangerous because some people can't get away from the virus in their house so if you're someone who lives with a frontline worker so a firefighter or a nurse or a teacher or whatever then you might be more at risk of covid <clears throat> but also we've seen increased rates of domestic violence familial abuse and i'm sure we'll all know people who are in miserable relationships that suddenly they're stuck in their house with people and um and they don't feel safe anymore um and then you know, in terms of home spaces, living in a shared house where you have to work in your bedroom is obviously quite different to living in a house where you've got a private office space. You know, I mean, I live in a tiny house. And I have to work in my bed or on my sofa most <laughs> most of the time. And I mean, I'm not saying I'm unfortunate in that, but um, it just shows that there's a difference there, again, in, in how people are accessing space. Again, if you've got kids at home, if you're having to pay to eat at house, clean up all the time, if you've got a supportive partner or not, or if you've got a partner or not, if you've got a cleaner, childcare in your home, all of these things are, to some extent, I think, spatial elements of the crisis that are revealing inequalities, injustices that, that were already there before COVID, but suddenly they're really, really present. And then secondly, obviously, we've seen the use of public space play out in issues of inequality and injustice in terms of uh, political responses to the pandemic. So Black Lives Matter and then anti-mask, anti-lockdown protests. Space has been really kind of central in the way that those kind of ideological battles are being fought. fought. Um, yeah, how we think and feel about spaces, I think, has been under scrutiny um, and, the, and symbolism. So my work is about sort of art culture. And I think symbolism has, has been very, very important in that public sphere. So the tearing down of statues with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Do these people represent our values now? These people that are kind of become sort of our cultural symbols. Can we idolise slave owners now at a time when black people are dying at disproportionate rates because of racism relating to ideologies that enabled the slave trade? So you get this disruption of space through direct action, the tearing down of statues. And in that space, you get a question, which is what do we want our cities to be now, right? So questions that emerge from that are who's the city for? What represents our values as a culture? What do we want our spaces to be? And I think that these questions were being asked before the pandemic as well. So sort of the last thing I have to say really is that one of the pre-COVID phenomena that I think is going to be really interesting as we go forward is this question about who are spaces for, who are cities for. So one of the things we've seen, I think, into an accelerating rate in the 21st century is cities that have been designed, built and organised 
as the idea of a city for sale. So London, New York, for example, increasingly become cities that are about the idea of themselves marketed to international investors or, or whoever it is, tourists. Um, I think somewhere like Dubai, which has obviously been quite prominent in the UK news with Instagrammers fleeing there and stuff, is an extreme example of a place that's built entirely almost to serve an idea of itself for tourists or outsiders or, or whoever might be attracted by that. So what we might get, I think, with the limited ability to travel that I think is going to go on after COVID um, is space is going to have to be rethought in terms of who does this city serve? Like what are the facilities, amenities, symbols that are going to connect in a long term way with the people who are using a city, invested in an area rather than people who are passing through or who are buying sort of space as an idea, you know, because we've come to really live in our spaces, I think, in a way that that we weren't necessarily before. So, yeah, that's a bit of a garbled response. But those are my thoughts around, I think, space and inequality. Yeah, <laughs> not not garbled at all. Really rich and so much for us to cover. I, re I really want to ask you about Black Lives Matter and um, those protests and how in, in many ways they've become a, 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 a kind of they've become a kind of a landmark moment for many of us, but also a flashpoint. Um, and, and I'll ask you about that in a moment. And also, we, we, we must, of course, talk about cities as well as other spaces. But I, the thing I wanted to ask you in response to, to your, your survey there of, of the condition we're in is, is about what we do about uh, uh, what we do in a state of emergency. I think you're, you're entirely right that certainly people like you who do the kind of research you do have been aware of these 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 problems, these issues, these dilemmas. And the COVID-19 crisis has brought them has crystallised them in a particular way and made them more urgent. But does it mean that we act upon that? I mean, and certainly right now where we know that multiple occupancy houses are at greater risk of contracting COVID, um, we know that people in domestic abuse situations are endangered, but does does COVID mean that we feel an urgency to act about these, these, these long-standing issues? Or is COVID making us realise how paralysing these issues are for us? I think that's a really interesting question because when you talk about we, you know, who are we referring yes. to there? So I think there's a couple of things that I've been thinking about lately. So one of the things that I'm writing about, okay, is in response to like Hannah Arendt talking about uh, justice and morality in uh, the postscript to Eichmann in Jerusalem. And she talks about how at that point in time, some of these sort of postmodernist moral relative questions are being asked about, well, what is right and wrong? Mm -hmm. And she kind of, it hints that, well, maybe we, maybe humans do have a capacity at a certain extent to differentiate right from wrong, even if the overarching culture is not um, one in which that is being played out in any sort of like way that, that we would understand it on a human level. So one of my, I guess, things that I think we need to come back to post-COVID is about, okay, how this, what, who is space for? How do we want to live? You know, do we want to live anymore? under these conditions whereby so many people are subject to inequality, disenfranchised through the, the, the sort of pervasive political system or not? And can we start to say that certain things are wrong? So it is wrong for there to be cities where people earning an average wage cannot afford to buy safe, secure housing, like that, that is wrong. And can we just start talking about it in those terms again, I think is, is one of the things that we can do as a populist, right, is to start just not any more getting confused about that there are some things that are right and wrong. And I, and then I also think that when you talk about who's, who needs to act, well, it's like the political class that are 
making decisions. So how do we put pressure on the political class, I think, to make the sort of changes that are going to make people's lives more bearable? Because like, it's very easy to say, but some people's lives under this have been unbearable. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you, you think about nurses, doctors, teachers coming home from work or working in spaces you know, nurses in London, teachers in London, in shared accommodation with other people, putting other people at risk. Anyway, I could go on about this, but I, yeah, for me, there's there's a question I think there about about questions of morality and and that that has and and kind of connections between between people, um, and and that's again comes out of right art practice that I'm interested in. Right, so how do how do you connect with other human beings, and what's the symbolism within that? And what are the kind of, I don't know, spiritual or moral imperatives that that rises? So I think we could do with going back to some of the, that again as an yeah. action. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, we, we, I think we, we're desperate to hear more about your art practice. I'm certainly going to ask you about that. I, I think there's something persuasive about this idea that the pandemic, when, when we're all living in a life and death situation, many of us for the first time may be grappling with those questions, that it does pose questions of morality, philosophical questions about ethics. You know, proximity is an ethical question. Um, and so it might, it might place some pressure on us to ask other ethical questions about what's right and wrong too. That seems persuasive to me. Let me open this up to Julia and Antoine. I wondered if you had any remarks or thoughts on, 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 on Katie's reflections there. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I think Casey, thanks for that. It was a really, I, d I don't think I can add and I really feel it and, and agree with everything you said. Um, I think my, my huge worry that I have today um, if we accept and, and you know, ev everything that you've just said is that I, I don't see um, in a kind of general recognition, a kind a, a, a sort of, it, I don't see a general recognition that a lot of this is from years of a kind of an accumulated social disaster, years of dispossession and years of inequality. It's as if COVID came, oh, I didn't realise. And all of a sudden, oh, I'm sorry that NHS is overwhelmed. But this is in, would have been entirely predictable. Um, and, and that's what really worries me. And I think we'll come back to this because unless we can acknowledge the what has happened before has shaped the, 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 the gross inequalities that have played out in the past year and that will continue to play out, I think the solutions won't come. And I worry that we will just keep on going into situations that are worse and not better, when surely a crisis, you know, if this is a crisis to articulate as a crisis, is a moment to design a better future. You know, and so Katie, you were alluding to that sort of thinking of improvements of, of better futures. Uh, and I'm, and I think, you know, I don't want to be really negative here, but that, that's my worry is that I just don't see that discourse. And 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 you know, and Antoine, you're coming in from the United States. I think it's the same in America, and that really worries me. Yes, this is a conversation that seems to have, that to some might seem like it's just sprung up, but we're talking about systemic longer term histories here as well, right? And Antoine, did you want to come in to talk to, to Katie? I think I agreed with uh, what she said. So perhaps I would just say that beware of the temptation to believe that we live in exceptional times. I think we may be just back to, you know, in some ways, in certain parts of the world, we lived an extraordinary peaceful period. You know, Western Europe, for example, had almost no war for almost 50, 50 years. 
which never happened before. You know, we didn't have plagues also for uh, etc. So in some ways, you know, sadly, it might be a back to normal, the normal of history. And we're rediscovering that actually, you know, globalization was not this happy dream that was sold to us, but that actually, you know, things are still, it's still a frightening world. I hope we might have some optimistic things to say. I was slightly worried. That I'm optimistic <laughs> in some ways, you know, yeah. that's my way of being optimistic, you know, yeah. in some ways, uh, because, because I would say also we have a tendency to, to see a convergence, which is probably partly real between, you know, these th the three crises that occupy our mind, the climate change thing, social inequality that Kate, Kate described in very eloquent terms, and finally the pandemic. Uh, but actually, and for sure, they have some level of connection, but at the same time, you know, beware of being apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want I, to ask... Well, I want to ask you specifically about that, because I, I'm very intrigued that you've done work on utopias and the history of technology. Some might say that we've entered a dystopian age. How, how has the pandemic affected your thinking about space? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm an historian, so, you know, pandemic have a history. So, as I said, I have the impression we're back. You know, in the 1990s, there were so many talks about the end of history, et cetera, and there, and that's not the end of history, evidently. So that would be the first thing. The second thing, we've also heard a lot of things about the post-human condition, the fact that we would escape, you know, the determination of bodies, et cetera. And there we're back to actually being very human, even if, you know, we deal uh, you know, to use actor network theory and, you know, this kind of, you know, we deal with these virus, et cetera, et cetera, but we're still very human. So what strikes me a little bit like, KD is how much space matters and not an abstract space, but a space in relation first to the body. You know, we were talking before this official meeting began with how to cohabit with pets with a lot of, you know, so space does matter and in almost, you know, millimetric way, you know, distances have never been so acute or lack of distance, etc. And also in space matters, of course, in relation to society, what strikes me by the end also is the return of question of scale, you know, be, you know, large flats, small flats, you know, uh, how to isolate oneself in a room, all those questions. But probably my big perplexity is, are we, you, you know, do crises really mark changes or not? You know, sometimes crises do change things. For example, the Great Plague in Europe, and, you know, which killed, I don't remember, I think it's something like a third of the European population on the, at the end of the Middle Ages, made the Renaissance possible because there were simply more food for the, those who survived. Sometimes they accelerate change, you know, much forgotten, but there was a massive horse plague at the end of the 19th century in America, which actually accelerated mechanization you know, a third of the horses died or something like that in uh, the United States and Canada. And sometimes they change nothing. And, you know, in France, for example, there are a lot of people talking of, you know, the day after it's going to be so different, etc. And, you know, honestly, I don't know. 
it's like the exodus from cities. You know, there are a lot of talks about the fact that cities are going to empty, et cetera, et cetera. Cities have proved dramatically resilient sometimes to massive change. So I'm not so sure. So sorry, I have mostly to share a deep perplexity on a certain number of things. What I believe, however, is that there are going to be huge tasks for designers to redesign, for example, homes. That's going to be a crucial thing. Uh, for example, I'm struck by one thing, how important in space has become sound. Right. When you have two people in a small room, each one talking to its computer, uh, you know, sound has become a dramatic problem in space. It use, uh, so there are a lot of things to rethink, uh, uh, which uh, I'm probably also evidently at the scale of the city. I'll stop there. Thank you. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. It's already caught my attention because sound has been an issue in my quite compact household, as I imagine for lots of people. And I, and I, I'm sort of trying to think about how architects, urban planners, city planners, designers will be trying to future-proof us for a post-COVID world where we might still have to live with viruses, and we may, even if we're not, we may still be working from home because some of these changes will be irreversible. And I, and I wonder. Well, Let's take on. a metaphor. Uh, you know, I, I think when you design interior space, you design visual bubbles. You know, you, and now you have to design bubbles which are not only, uh, you know, uh, having to do with vision, but with sound, with a lot of things like that. I, I think we're finally having to cope with the true multisensory character of space, which, you know, vision used to dominate design. In some yeah. ways. That's really interesting. I wonder if I can ask Julia about this too, because you're our, our two practicing architects. Is, are those the conversations that are being had amongst design people? Are they, are they talking about soundproofing? Are they talking about home offices? Are they talking about more data points and stronger Wi-Fi connections? What, what are the conversations? I mean, I'm definitely just, you know, caveat, I'm definitely on the periphery of architecture because I'm firmly embedded in academia. So although I do, um, do academia through practice in a way, if yeah. put it like that, particularly around sanitation. And I think for sure these conversations are being had, but I, um, I think one of the, 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 the frustrating things I can imagine most architects um, have with, with all of this, you know, ventilation and sound and all this stuff is that actually we, we already know this, you know, you take any kind of good London housing guide um, or any, if you look at a sort of a housing competition by most architects, they're actually really good. Um, the problem is that that's actually not mainstream. That's actually mm. not what most houses look like. Most developments don't even use architects. So, you know, if we look at, for, for example, there's a fantastic piece by Ollie Wainwright in The Guardian this week about Nine Elms, you know, this sort of huge, massive, you know, it's like a Ponzi scheme slash physical banks and hiding Battersea Power Station. And actually, you know, that's a kind of, that's an economic model, but also, and then that results in an architectural model of really poorly built houses. Um, and there was another, I mean, in the New York Times, there was a piece today about these skyscrapers going up, they've gone up in New York that are, you know, in the, in the clouds, literally, not metaphorically, and that they're falling apart due to leaks and so on. And these are sort of these billion dollar pads that are actually falling apart. And they become sort of like these physical symbols that the ideology behind them is actually also crumbling right before us, even though no one's really quite saying it. Um, and so I think that's where I, I kind of get frustrated is that we know this stuff, like this, this, you know, public space, the need for it, the need for good housing, we know it. 
And we've known this for ages. Um, but now it's, I guess we know it more acutely. And I, and I hope that this will be a step change in, in how we build. And I think um, Antoine was talking about crises before. And I, and I think architecture historically has responded, you know, the, the great, the plague, but also the fire of London was a huge step change in, in how we built. And actually a lot of the codes that came out of that still survive today. But, but again, going back to sort of my worry in response to Katie's bit is that the problem isn't design or the problem isn't cities. The problem's inequality. The problem is crony capitalism. The problem is bad governance. And I don't think those things architects can fix, you know. Um, and so I guess, yeah, some of my comments will sort of steer us around that. I mean, something that, I, you know, that, that I've been thinking about a lot and thinking about Nine Elms is that where's the accountability in that? And even more painful is thinking, where's the accountability for something like Grenfell? You know, it's mm-hmm. been years. And if you listen in on, on, on which I've been struggling to follow because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge legal thing that's happening. I mean, the BBC has a fantastic podcast on it for those who, 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 who are interested, but it's hard to get your head around it. But I don't think there will be any accountability on that. And people died in mm-hmm. shoddy housing that was clad badly, bad decisions, poor decisions, Ill- seemingly illegal decisions. And I'm not convinced anyone will go to jail for that. Um, I hope I'm wrong. Um, and so this, this lack of accountability around the built environment um, for me is, is, is very problematic. And I would like to see architects um, take that more seriously. Because yeah. um, you can see the architects in the Grenfell case have kind of gone, not us. Yeah, wow, that's really, that's really powerful. That's really interesting. Antoine, did you want to have a go at that question about, about design and the kinds of conversations that architects and architect students are having about the post-pandemic world? I think you're muted at the moment. Sorry, I'm going to unmute you all. There we go. Yeah, just a remark. I'm always a bit nervous when we say, you know, it's we know that because actually we don't know that many things, uh, even in design, you know, take climate change. We're still very much looking for solution. And I don't think, you know, you mentioned utopia, fixing society first usually doesn't work. So we need to do with greedy capitalism. I completely agree that we need to change the system. But, you know, if we wait for the system to change, we need also local solution. We need design innovation. Otherwise, you know, if we wait for the world to get to be a better, more just place, etc., just as by magic, it's not going to happen. So we need in some ways to embed social justice in local solution. Uh, because that's what we can do right now. Mm. Um, And I agree otherwise that, yes, inequality is going to be a huge problem. Uh, I think probably one of the good things with this crisis that it shows that nobody will be safe until the entire planet is vaccinated in good conditions. And and this is where, by the way, a, a very technical thing like a vaccine can actually foster questions about inequality better than, you know, general interrogation about social justice, because people want to be safe. They might want to be a, pay a bit more attention to inequality. So, I mean, safety is such an interesting 
term to think about in this conversation, listening to, to Julia talking talking about Grenfell uh, and COVID as well, and our how, how to be how to be safe and whether that will be an imperative that that alters the way that we design our cities and our homes, I think is is a really interesting question. Let me ask Katie just for a moment if she wanted to respond to Antoine for or or, she, or I can turn to Julia. No, I mean, I'm interested in questions of safety, definitely, and questions of, and and what it makes me think of, because obviously I'm not a a designer, right, so that's not where I'm coming from, but is, you can't obviously change the political system, right, but how do you call for what I think is a question about class, which Anton speaks on, which is nobody's safe till everybody's safe in every aspect. So when you've got poverty, when you've got huge wealth inequality, you have a system where no one's safe. You know, if everybody's safe and housed, you're less likely to get robbed when you go out of your house, um, you know, as a sort of basic answer. So I guess one of my questions, which again comes back to symbolism, because I think that there's something really important about the way that ideology plays out through symbolism, which is, again, maybe a design question which is how do we express, because I think everybody feels frustrated when you talk about Grenfell, you know, obviously we've got working class people feeling really, really angry, frightened um, that they might be next, people living in social housing, for example, but also homeowners, middle-class people who now no longer feel safe because their homes are clad in um, unsafe cladding and also they can't sell their homes and those sort of things. So th- then to me, the question comes, how, how do you f- have a symbolic order that expresses the strength of that frustration? And one of the things that's really annoyed me about cyberspace is that's a, quite a 90s word, isn't it? But cyberspace. <laughs> it's a bit like virtual reality. Nobody talks about virtual reality anymore, do they? Yeah. No, but is, is the sort of way that it is utterly useless in expressing that frustration. So memes, right? I love memes, ha ha. But also sometimes this stuff isn't funny. And we have a political class that have treated us with complete contempt in the UK throughout this pandemic, told utter lies. And our response to that is a funny meme. Like it doesn't compute. And um, yes, there's been protest, there's been street protests and things like that. But I don't think that 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 the majority of the population has necessarily felt safe enough to go out and express their frustration in that way. Um, and sometimes I wonder whether the the kind of mediation of our frustration through these kind of corporate sort of cyber, I can't think of another word, interfaces, yes, right, yeah. is actually because these are other spaces that we're operating in is actually sort of getting us quite stuck um, in terms of moving this political order out of the out of where we are with it at the moment. Um, and and again, they, those aren't questions about architectural design because like that's not what I know about, but I think they are questions about how do we use kind of symbolism and the spaces that we do have access to, to, ha- to have some kind of, you know, to, to foster changes in, in even if they're in sort of micro ways where, where we feel more empowered or able to cope or, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. Thank you, Katie. I'm going to remind our audience that they can ask questions in the chat box um, and I will pose them to our panel for you. So feel free to do that and you can ask to be anonymous too if you prefer that. Julia, let me turn to you with this question of, about how the pandemic has affected your thinking about space. How How optimistic are you about the possibility of a post-pandemic future and, and, and this idea that we, we might return to normal. 
So firstly, I want to sort of think about what we mean by space, um, because actually um, it was, I think my PhD supervisor was like, never use that word, it's meaningless. Um, and so I think in this conversation, we are naturally talking about, and I think Anton was sort of talking about that, sort of the places that we physically occupy and the architecture that kind of connects us to each other. And so, and in that we can recognize the domestic sphere and the public sphere. And so that's sort of, but we're very much talking about the built environment. We're dropping into a lot talking about cities, but I think it's the same for towns and suburban, it's, you know, suburban areas and, and even rural areas. You know, these are all built up areas where we can kind of interchange and connect with, 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 our, with our citizens, uh, fellow citizens. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and in that, it's, I guess it's the, it's the domain of architecture and urbanism. Um, in terms of going back to normality, I mean, I think I don't want to return to normal if normal is January 2019. Um, you know, I, I want to live in a world where, you know, I, you know my, my normal would like to be a world where, you know, nurses are paid properly and, you know, where housing is affordable, um, you know, where, where kids don't need free school meals. So, but, you know, I think that's, that's, that's useful as a kind of where we want to go. And I think, I'm trying to, you know, maybe I was right when I said, oh, we have the design tools. And he said, no, actually designers can lead on this stuff. I think whilst I agree with my statement, I also agree with yours. And, and I think where design can come in is that I think how we think about and how we design and the kind of architecture of our built environment, if it can be designed around social organizations based on cooperation, then that's how we get to that, that kind of normal that, that, that I would like to see. And, um, you know, and so I, th I think this is definitely, a, um, you know, we, I, I, I teach architecture students and I've been banging on about this stuff for ages, like let's design social infrastructure. And, you know, Katie, that can be the kind of symbols that, that you're calling out for. And, um, and, and there are, I mean, just very tangential example in, in Colombia, when they wanted to rechange and democratize the transport system, they heavily invested in cycle lanes. So there was a sort of visual signifier of going, we care about cyclists. And so I, I, I've been talking, well, we've been, you know, academics and practitioners and care workers have been talking about this for a while, but what would a city orientated around care look like? And so there are very tangible design things that we can do. So for example, London's transport system is not built for care workers. It is built to get people who go from their homes into a job in the city center, most likely a man, and then that person's gonna come back out. Well, what does a transport system that works for women who do unpaid care work? What does a transport system look, look, look like for you know, literally care workers? And so I would quite, you know, I, th I think there is definitely room for designers and visionaries to, to, to mainstream that kind of articulation of our cities and towns, which for me is really exciting. Um, you know, that's where, I, I, you know, we have to be radical optimists and design these worlds. But I say that with a huge worry that I'm not sure that's where we're going. I think we're gonna come out of this pandemic and, and be in a worse situation than we were before. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I, I, you know, we, we, I feel like we went through a, a phase where we were clapping our NHS workers very earnestly, even though it wasn't doing very much. But we were also, you know, reevaluating the role of um, key workers, teachers, shop assistants, Amazon drivers, delivery drivers, nurses, and doctors. We were we are reevaluating their their value, and and if we could have kept that, if we could keep that in mind, maybe we would rethink the way we design cities and spaces so that they can 
they can live well enough to, to to give us the lives we want. But I also think that that idea is slightly falling away as well, that the pandemic has gone on for so long that it's quite hard to hold on to those values. But but let me let me draw in Katie and, and Anton. I wondered if you want, had to, any responses for Julia then? Because Julia did end on a, pos- I think, on a possibly optimistic. Yes, yeah, d- yeah. <laughs> I'll just say that I think there's room for optimism in human relationships and that is something that I know that many of us have been missing or have found you know have have found enriching or or whatever it is but I think that renewed sense of you know it's really about not just human beings I mean we were talking about pets as well right before we came before we came backstage gossip we were talking about our pets gossip but but you know that sense of like what does it mean to like bear things and what does it mean to like have a human experience that is not just driven by this like working imperative or, um, you know, questions of kind of drive to achieve or whatever it is that kind of I felt like I was at least caught up in before the pandemic happened is that like peaceful sense of being just with people in humanity or or whatever it is. And for me, you know, those aren't necessarily, I mean, obviously you've got things like hostile architecture, right? In city spaces, which make those sort of human, just bodily, like a, like a, it's hard for like a soft body to, to be with another soft body in, the, in, in a city that's designed to make people move because they've, they've just got to buy all the time. You mean um, like spikes on park benches to deter the homeless park. and yeah. barbed wire and yeah all of that kind of thing exactly so um so yeah things that stop you from hanging about in the city so sometimes they you you know yeah those things are spikes or they're benches that are uncomfortable to sit on or or whatever it might be so those are design questions but they're also questions about you know what do we prioritize in our public space and there's a big um well I don't know how big it is but certainly I've heard a lot about it on Twitter um sort of activism which is calling out secret cinema in Walthamstow who are planning to do an event on on some public green land there and local people are saying hang on a minute you know this is our green space where we we are together in this green space and this is our ability to kind of be human and connect with one another play sports in teams walk with our partners you know see our friends across the way or whatever it is and that's going to be taken away from us really only so that a company can make some profit and some people who are already quite well off can watch a a film in fancy dress so it you you then start to get questions about I think where that thing about actually you know what do we want to bear things day to day uh, become a a point of optimism because people you know people start going back to that kind of human humanity between people which again Mm -hmm. goes back to that idea of morality and justice that I was talking about earlier which for me has to play out on that sort of emotional spiritual level Thank you for that. Any of that made sense. <laughs> it did. No, it totally did. And Antoine, I maybe I can draw you back in on anything you like that 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 Julia said. But also, I know you're specifically thinking about the non-human. That the pandemic has made you think about our relationship to the non-human and how we share space. Oh, you're muted, Antoine. I'm so sorry. Ah, there we go. Couple of reaction. The first, I completely agree with Katie in some ways. What makes me optimistic is that we're rediscovering that what we do in, you know, in um, 3D space, I still use the term, uh, and uh, with our bodies does matter. And, you know, it's quite interesting, you know, some 
five to 10 years ago when online teaching began to develop, the big question was how exciting it is, what are we going to do online, et cetera. I think now the question, we know we can do a lot of things online, it's frustrating, et cetera, but we know we can do it. The real question now is what kind of meaning are we going to give to meeting in person, interacting, for example, in a classroom, whatever, what can we do, what should we do that cannot be done online, uh, et cetera. So, which leads me to another thing, which is related to Katie's symbolism, which is the question of meaning. Uh, I think the pervasing feeling is a certain, I think, sense of absurdity, of, you know, a, a kind of meaningless uh, threat. You know, what if, you know, the world was becoming meaningless? What if society was so crazy that etc so I, I think we need actually to reconquer in some ways uh, the meaning of everyday action the meaning of meeting with friends of hugging all these things i think i'm reasonably optimistic and you know hoping that still we'll be able to go back to part of the lives we lived before insofar that I miss, for example, very simple things like gathering in a cafe mm -hmm. with friends or that kind of thing, chit-chatting endlessly, uh, uh, you know, uh, with friends, etc. So I miss these things. But I think the real question now is really, you know, we took them for granted and did not think much about what they meant, what the, the kind of riches they embodied. I, I think for me, inequality also... You know, we took inequality in some ways as a problem. We have now to realize it's an existential condition, which is different. We have to feel it. I, I think in some ways, the pandemic has begun to make us realize that inequality marks our own bodies. When you get infected by a poor guy who didn't have any choice but get infected to deliver stuff for you or whatever, when all these things happen, you realize all of a sudden that inequality can hit you directly, and it's not a problem out there. Mm. And, and I do think that's also something we need to realize. Yeah. Let me, let me um, pivot to the digital for a moment, because you started your remarks by talking about teaching online. And I, and I wonder, and we are, of course, online, and this is an opportunity for me to remind our audience that they can leave us questions. Uh, and please use the Q&A box rather than the chat box, and we will come to those questions. Um, but, but, but tell me about the digital. Is, is this, um, should we be anxious about how digital space has picked up the slack? Is it encroaching on our work and social lives? Is this beneficial? I think anx anxious has no meaning because it's going, you know, one of the few things we're sure is that we're going to live in much more hybrid mode than before. You know, we will not go back to completely, you know, take, for example, PhD dissertation in France, people used to fly all, be flown all over the world to attend a PhD dissertation defense. That was part of the ritual, et cetera. That's probably going to be over. There are a lot of things we won't be doing anymore. We'll be doing that by Zoom or other means, et cetera. So I, I, I think it's not a matter of being afraid. Rather, I think, once again, the problem is not the digital. The problem really is what we do uh, with our bodies in the real space. You know, the digital is there and, you know, yes, we know that conspiracy theories flourish on Facebook, et cetera. We all know all that. But 
Uh, I don't think it's the biggest problem, strangely. I think the biggest problem is to requalify, for example, public space, to rethink what is a city of encounters, how do we design it, etc. It's not, you know, the, 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 the electronic or the internet, etc. It's with us and that's it. We are all learning to dance differently online, I think. There's a whole kind of other negotiation of space that we're learning to do online in Zoom calls and things. I mean, what do you think, Katie? Is this, are there benefits to this new digital space or, or will it replace bricks and mortars or, 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 or is, this, is, this, is this a temporary solution for hopefully a temporary problem? Um, I'm optimistic about the use of digital space. I mean, obviously it comes, as um, Anton has said, with, with, you know, problems that are like well trodden. But I think in terms of environmental impact of flying everywhere, well, that, that we now know that, that that doesn't really need to happen on the scale that it happened before. Um, so we can cut back on some some of that, which I think will be very positive and I think that there's also questions about addressing inequality through the digital which are useful um so obviously I think now the case for there being free broadband for everybody right has been made that needs to happen but also you know an artist that I work with a little bit who runs uh workshops normally in person beatboxing workshops for local young people in London um many of of over the years of the kids who, who are in his workshops have, have moved back to family country. So he's got one little boy who recently moved back to India and, and has been able to zoom in um, to these beatbox workshops and pick up some sense of semblance of, of his life before. So all of a sudden access to spaces that were closed off because of location have been opened up. And I know that in my university, we've been doing hybrid teaching. So people in, in their room and also people in the room. Um, so again, you know, and, and that might, overcome issues of disability and access and so on um so i think there's lots of reasons to be optimistic about the digital space and that it offers different possibilities that aren't necessarily always the the, the best but have their own you know might have their own kind of benefits as well where are you on this julia um, I think my starting point is that I've realized how little I understand when we talk about the digital space. This is so far away from my kind of how I operate how, in the past. And, um, you know, so there's a huge amount of ignorance here. Um, I think one of my anxieties is around sort of how algorithms are shaping our lives. And I and, and I think, you know, the, you know, Katie, you talked about sort of dig- digital inequalities. And I think that's sort of linked to it. You know, we think that these algorithms are neutral, but they're not. Um, but I do find it, you know, when social contact is kind of basic, you know, basically dangerous and unlawful, actually mass protest has kind of has survived. And, and, and not just, you know, Black Lives Matter, Nigeria, the, around the world, we're seeing, you know, farmers in, in India right now. Um, and so, you know, when in-person meetings have become hard, it's I find it quite um, powerful to see that actually that, yes, you know, social media posts, video viral chats and all that support kind of mass movements, but it's not replaced street protest. And also just as a side note, like if the digital, you know, if Amazon, who's like the digital firm, you know, they're, they're making an, an HQ, like they're, they're just investing in a 22 story building. So if Amazon are investing mm. in physical space, you know, surely that's a signifier of something. So um, uh, yeah, but it's definitely outside of my area of expertise. I guess from my from, from kind of from my position of, as a practitioner, or, or even as an academic, you know, sociology for me is actually the study of listening and talking to people, 
And I have felt professionally completely rudderless for a year now, well, coming to a year. And, and, I, and I think architecture also, you know, good architecture involves a degree of that. And I think that's my worry is I agree with Katie that it allows for new connections and new forms. I'm doing work that I never would have imagined I could have done, like with people in Pakistan and Ethiopia. But um, I, I'm worried about kind of, yeah, the ethnography um, and, 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 and sort of, and this is just from a personal perspective. So, um, yeah. Well, maybe I can ask a, a personal question to, to each of you about our, our workplaces, you know, which are, for me is currently my, my very small box room. Um, and I'm imagining similar for you. Um, is our attitude to workplaces going to alter? Is this the end of the office, for instance? What do you think, Antoine? I think first, to go back to the previous question, I think we're going to see an increased hybridization between, you know, you know, 3D and electronic. So, which will also mean that we'll have meeting, which will be sometimes more hybrid than before, et cetera. So we have, and whoever is looking at a self smartphone in the street is actually already living in this situation of hybridity. So we have to accept it. For me, I have to say it hasn't changed that many things because I used to work a lot at home. So, uh, so in some ways, I don't think I'm as impacted as many people. And in addition, you know, writing is kind of a solitary activity. So you need to be alone. So, so it's not the workplace that has been the, the most impacted. It's more the rhythm of sociability. In some ways, you know, academic life is an alternance of solitude and, you know, intense gathering, etc. So we've had mostly the solitude for the past month. This is what has changed. But otherwise, you know, in terms of workplace, so many people actually work from home, work from home before in the kind of job I do. Julia? Yeah, I mean, I think I also worked from home a fair amount. But I think what I find frustrating is that around the debates around sort of is it the end of the workplace or the office or the city is that it kind of actually just reduces us to sort of labor and you know I'm more than that um and you know I miss my colleagues and I think a lot of people do, you know it's actually it's quite unproductive working from home all the time um I've, I've found this sort of spill of my professional into my into the domestic yeah. sphere really unsettling and and I think most people don't want it so I think when we can go back to our to our offices I mean Antoine, we can't, at the LSE, we can't even do what you're doing and going into a room, you know, without loads of paperwork and stuff. You know, we are well, really, really... you might be surprised <laughs> to see the forms I had to fill okay, to well, I'm glad then that in this... the Harvard room. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad that we're both on the same page then, because... Trust so I think me, that's... it's not an easy thing. <laughs> good, because <laughs> it's not for us either. Um, and so I think that's one of the things is, you know, I think there is a kind of conviviality um, it's not just that, oh, you know, I, I think we're better workers in an office environment because you, you, you have, you know, for a little conversation, I have to make a Zoom thing. Um, but the, 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 the conversation around cities and the end of the workplace in cities, like Antoine was saying, that's been around for ages. That's been around since, you know, definitely 
since the 2000s and the kind of like the glo when the, the our globalized world became so apparent. Um, and you're totally right. You know, we've been doing this for ages with with these things. Um, but and, and, and one of the frustrating sort of nuances that I'm lacking and seeing lacking in the debate is that, you know, urban centralization and decentralization go hand in hand. You know, I think it's a huge simplification to kind of reduce it to one or the other. It's I, I honestly don't think it will ever be one or the other. Um, and, you know, I, I think for me, cities are so much more than work. And I've left living in London, but, you know, as, as, as kind of as a young gay girl, that was so important. You know, I had to go to London and I don't know how many people have seen It's a Sin. So Antoine, this is a, a, a Channel 4 TV show that came out and it really like hurt my heart to sort of, it was like this beautiful, you could see all these young gay boys and gay girls coming to London to kind of find themselves. And I kind of thought, fuck, if we don't yeah. love our cities, we're going to lose something so important. Um, you know, and so cities are more than just machines for working. I just kind of want to put yeah. that in there. Uh, maybe I want to ask Katie this, but Katie, ask, answer the question about working from home. How are you finding it? Our workplaces over for us. Um, yeah, I just want to, you know, say to Julia, I totally exactly know what you mean. I watched Mad Men at the start of the first lockdown and I actually had to turn it off after an episode because they were, you know, there was some scene in a bar and it made me want, <laughs> want to cry because I thought, you know, when am I going to be able to do this again? And, you know, for those of us who live on our own or, or, or it's really, really important, you know, to think about the value of space beyond you know, us as units of productivity. I mean, I hate, I worked from home a fair amount anyway, but I absolutely hate not being able to to work from home and teach face-to-face. -face. I did do a bit of face-to-face -face teaching last term, um, as in face-to-face -face in person and, you know, masks and things. And even that for me was preferable because, you know, I teach theatre studies. So obviously it's a really sort of live, intimate performance. Um, you know, it's a live thing about bodies in spaces together so when you take that away you lose a huge amount of of what it is you're actually doing in the first place uh again there are benefits to it but I think the one thing I want to say about working from home which which doesn't seem to be being addressed at least by my employer is like how much <laughs> money it's costing me to work at home yeah. I have to have the lights on all day I have to heat my house I'm having I've had to buy a printer and pay for all my own printing costs now those are being counted as savings by our employer um, by our employers right they're like oh look at all the money we save if people work from home all the time but actually you know especially for those of us who work in the public sector in the UK that our wages frozen and so on you know we are and I, you know I don't want to moan obviously you know I'm financially okay but in the long term who profits from us working at home and I don't think that it's us you know I live in a tiny house I haven't really got space to work I haven't certainly haven't got space to work in a way that you know, I haven't got a desk, space for a desk and a chair. So, so yeah, those um, yeah. questions I think about about who, what, you know, what does it mean in the long term for us to work from home, and how can, yeah, you know, how can we figure that? Is again a question that is is probably a, a political yeah. one. Um, not, yeah, not to join your moan, but I, I feel the same about when when we can monetize spaces and and calculate the savings from. The, the lights that aren't on and the printer paper you're not paying for, what happens to those spaces? Do they get repurposed? Do they become, you know, corporate, do lecture halls become corporate venues? You know, those are all things that preoccupy and worry me. Um, but let me ask you, Katie, about a bit more about your own work as, a, as, a, as someone who works in the arts. And perhaps this connects to Julia's anxiety about culture, but where 
groups, communities, marginalized groups might meet? Because, you know, we obviously we've seen the, the closure of our theatres and galleries. So what's the future for the arts? Uh, are, are artists thinking about space differently? Oh, of course. I mean, in the theatre, which is my arena, people have had to over the last year because they just haven't been able to work. So there's, you know, in some ways, it's been quite exciting to see some of the innovations that people have made. And obviously, you know, the arts, the elite arts in London and the UK, you know, it is a closed shop in the sense of, you know, who's getting work, who are the gatekeepers to those spaces. And I think one thing that is interesting about the, the sort of the switch to the digital online space is that it it pushes out some of that uh, gatekeeping. I mean, not all of it, but but certainly it makes you think, oh, maybe there are possibilities to do things differently and to innovate in different ways. So I've been quite excited by the possibilities, I think, that that of, of the digital space. But obviously it's awful, you know, it's awful that what's happening to the arts and cultural sector, you know, it's completely devastating. And, you know, what is a city like London, like Manchester, like without an arts and cultural scene, you know, or pubs or restaurants? It's not, it's not anywhere somebody would want to live. So for, you know, whoever it is that's making decisions about what we invest in and what we try to save when we come out of, of this mess, you know, for me, obviously it, the arts are really, really important. I mean, one of the things that really made me angry actually was, which uh, obviously that's all the news does now, right? Is it tries to make you angry. So <laughs> when I, so, so it succeeded. But was was it was a um, article about Matt Hancock quoting from I think it was Contagion in some meeting to sort of explain the gravity of the situation. The film, yes. Yeah, and I thought, how dare you quote from a film, and at the same time we've run down the arts for the whole of your political career but at the same time join a party you know that has disinvested it in arts and culture and, and arts and culture in schools and yet you're going to use the sort of symbolism of a film and not understand you know the whole ecosystem that allowed you to make a statement that a statement using that film you're not going to understand what that is and what what that means to cities and spaces and you know what it's meant again for people to bear the pandemic has been you know connections with music connections with film connections with recorded theater and so on so for me yes um there's been some some interesting innovations i think in the in the digital space but we need to save you know think about the importance of saving the cultural infrastructure of of the country that you know of of the uk and and england but worldwide as well um yeah Good answer. Let, let's turn to our audience because they've given us so many questions and they're all brilliant. I might start with the, what I might do is, is put some of them together and please don't feel obliged to an- all of you to answer unless you would like to, because there's so many to get through. But this last one that's just come in, I think speaks to the conversation that we've been having just now. This is from Rachel Granger, but lots, if lots of us, but lots of us work from home, if lots of us work from home, then how will we achieve what Jane Jacobs outlined as density and diversity of capital? Conviviality and serendipity is everything. Cities might end up being really bland with lock-in of ideas. So how will we, how will we achieve culture? How will we achieve conviviality and the accident of serendipity if we're all working from home? Any answers to that? I mean, I think we are talking about a sort of a a post-lockdown world. And now I don't know if that's managing COVID or not. So, I mean, 
I, I don't think in a lockdown situation you can have that. It's that's that's what we're missing. That's exactly the problem of right now is that chance encounter. It's gone completely. Even a planned encounter, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think you know in a in a it, the, for, I mean maybe naively I don't foresee a, a a problem with with that once we can move. You know even so even if you're working from home in theory you can work from home in a city and step out and go to a restaurant and so on. I mean you know even even if I think about the summer compared to now that felt like a hive of of sort of bolstered activity. Um, and I I don't think we will. My personal opinion is I don't think everyone will work from home every day. I think Antoine's right. It will be a hybrid model. So, um, you know, I, I, I think we will come back to that. Um, you know, so, so I don't, I, you know, from my perspective, I don't think anyone's saying that we, we won't. Um, it's a matter of when and how safe and the role of vaccines and if we'll still wear masks and so on. I'm going to be wearing a mask for ages, you know, maybe forever. I don't... Uh... I don't think we will, uh, but you know, I, I think basically, you know, to echo what was just been said, we're not going to work only at home, which means that we have to figure out how to reinvent public space. As I say, when we meet with people, you know, what, why do we do that? We used to take for granted the luxury of others. You know, now I realize, for example, as as, as a teacher that having swarm bodies in a room ready to engage in a conversation with you is actually, it's not a given, it's a luxury. So we have to realize that actually public life is a luxury that is that may be offered to us back. But, and, it's, it's, and I think that's the proper way to reinvent a city today, to understand that the city is actually much more than you know, just a functional thing. It's the luxury of being able to be together, exchange ideas, etc. Katie, very quickly, if you want to come in. Yeah, I do want to come in because I just want to say that that you know, huge amounts of people aren't working from home, and what we've got is a you know, really a, a huge again class divide where we've got frontline workers, um, people making it possible for everybody else to be safe and putting themselves at risk the whole time, and that has sort of been treated as fair enough by you know the political order and everybody else and the powers that be and I've been surprised by the sort of lack of resistance to I mean obviously there's obviously I accept that we've needed to have lockdowns and so on but I think the extent to which they the idea that this is an emergency and as soon as the NHS isn't under strain everybody needs to be allowed out of their house again has not featured as highly in the conversation as I would have mm. liked it to and the fact of the pressure that is being put on certain uh, you know certain economic uh, I don't know economic um, sections of the population i.e low and average income earners and people working on the front lines to go out and risk themselves for everybody else is something that I do think we need to acknowledge. And again, that's about inequality of space. And, and it's something that we just cannot think is the status quo that should be allowed to go forward. I, I want to ask, I want us to pivot a bit and think about life beyond cities. Because I mean, we are slightly in danger of talking only about cities. And we've got a great question from Kerry Young, 
who's asked, would a rebirth of our villages be a worthwhile approach for post-pandemic society with government incentives for moving out of cities? And, and complementary to that, Kevin Dykes is asking, if city rents and land values fall significantly, there could be room for co-op owned housing and small business openings, such as happened in Johannesburg after the white flight post-apartheid. So is there life beyond cities that we can rejuvenate? Can the city be reformulated into a less city-like shape, I guess, those questions asking any any thoughts I don't, I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive you know I think you know we can have great villages and great cities um and and that's what I mean that that's what I hope will happen for London is that actually I hope that the normal that London returns to is actually where rents are lower so you will have more you know more people in the in the in the art sector and more sort of culture will be able to have because when you're spending you know, 40% of your income on rent, you know, it really stifles creativity. Um, so that, that is actually my hope for London is that it will become, and yeah, and if that opens up spaces for cooperative movements, you know, which have been around for ages and sort of struggled to really kick off, great, I really hope so. But I, I do want to return to something because Antoine made a comment earlier about um, the sort of global order. And, and I just wanted to, to say something because it's quite important to me as a, a Venezuelan and about lockdown, again, sort of thinking about global inequalities. You know, my family in Venezuela haven't been able to leave their home in the evening for de a decade because of, you know, social insecurity. And so I do think, yeah, there's, we have framed our conversation very much around a sort of very sort of Western. And I think, and even that's fallen into pitfalls. You know, Katie, I was actually embarrassed when, when you said your comment, um, uh, you know, because I had spoken beforehand and, and not actually made reference to so many people who are working. And so I think that's one of the real challenges actually for me is how you can hold all these different realities at the same time and be fair and just and and honest and um and yeah you know, I, I find that quite tricky actually but do, do you mean you think that there will be different implications for people for instance from the global south from, from south america from yeah, i mean places yeah you speak to venezuelans and covid is just another layer of shit it's just you know it's just another thing and actually it's probably not even the biggest. <laughs> you know, when you live with huge political insecurities, when the, your economy has tanked, you know, and there's many other countries around the world that have that, when you live in, you know, extreme violence, um, you know, constant violence, um, COVID is, oh, when you don't, you know, we have an expectation of everyone, you know, whether that plays out or not, we have an expectation that anyone, everyone who gets COVID in this country deserves an ICU bed and deserves an oxygen mask. In Venezuela, there are non-functioning hospitals for anything. You know, it just doesn't, there's an, it's, so it's not even a debate of whether you get into ICU or not. It's you don't have a hospital. When you go to hospital in Venezuela, you've got to take your own goals with you. Mm. So of course, COVID drops off slightly. And so... Yeah, it's for sure it plays out differently. It's a really sobering thought, that isn't it? A sobering reminder of how, how narrow our conversation is in that global context. Let me move on to more, more audience questions before the audience get furious at us, because the questions are so good. This is from Tim Peake, who I think is an astronaut. Tim, Tim Peake was a famous astronaut. So maybe this is literally a question about space. 
Um, but maybe not. Um, maybe it's not Tim Peake, the astronaut. His question is, surely you have to look at the reactivating planning system and its current lack of ethical responsibilities for a just city. Individual architects are too compromised by serving a market system to be effective in proposing means to address inequality. Anton, can I ask you about this? It's quite a difficult question, but are, are individual architects too compromised by the market to be, to be, to be, you know, challenging inequality and 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 planning a, a, a city or, or 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 whatever it is in a less re reactive way. I think it depends on the architects. Not everybody is compromised, especially in a profession where there is a strong tendency today to have a very small elite who you know uh, monopolizes a, a number of commission, and the others are left. Uh, you know on the side of the road. I do think we need to democratize design insofar that design is not only something for architects. You know, you've got an urban designer, you've got landscape, you've got et cetera. So I think one of the question is, of course we need specialists, we need professionals, et cetera, but we need design actually to become truly something that is shared. So my answer would be, I don't, I don't think architects can do it alone. Some of them may be compromised, but I think the real question is to have a conversation on design that extends beyond architecture as we know it, or even planning as we know it, et cetera. I think this is becoming urgent. But, well, maybe and, this uh, Sorry, I interrupted you, Anton, but uh, it connects to the next question from Felicity Parsons. How can architects and others interested in the built environment effectively engage with the public to push questions of design, planning policy into everyday political debate? Do, do we, I mean, that seems like a crucial question. Huh. Stopped. I mean, surely it's about, um, about requiring more from let's say the political class, if it, you know, which, which Katie's talked about, um, not settling for such shoddy, shoddy architecture. Um, mm. But I, I actually don't know how to, how to do I, I don't know the answer to that question. It's really uh, hard. I, uh, if I may, I think there again, if we take design and as, as an expanded field, you know, it's sure that it's not by building, you know, single family homes that you're going to solve the world's problem. On the other hand, architects can, and designers can do a lot of things which are extremely, for example, they're very good at mapping. I think a crucial problem today is representing, you know, inequality. They're also very good at thinking in terms of scale. I think, for example, today, we're seeing the limits of traditional project as it was. And, we're, and there are a number of people who think that instead of doing urban composition like a 19th century Holzmann, we need to have more cloud-like punctual intervention on the city that may be discussed. So to change the modes of design, to imagine also micro design uh, with whom you can consult with people. So I think we need there again, a kind of innovation on how to do it. And which is which is to go beyond, but I, I think already mapping. You know, you may you know, uh, Katie mentioned a couple of times. You know, the symbolic. I think we need actually to foster, you know, to 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 get to give people the the right to see things as they are. 
You know, strangely, you know, one of the function of architectural ornament in traditional societies was to make visible inequality. And modern architecture tried to erase the spectacle of inequality. So I think strangely to give again people to see the spectacle of inequality, its horrors, but also, you know, sometimes the way people can still do it. You mentioned Venezuela, Venezuelans still are still alive and you're wondering how, but it's uh, so to give these things, make these things visible is one of the tasks of design. Mm -hmm. That's a really it's really interesting that you bring up, sorry, just to, I feel compelled to, 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 to bring course, in the, sort yeah. of Booth's poverty maps because, you know, he, th there are pro problematics with them, but what, what it did was it made visible the scale of poverty in Victorian London. And, and I think it also paved the way to sort of, as a way to talk about poverty, not as um, someone's vice, but rather actually a structural condition. And it sort of then segued towards various political reforms like labor labor laws and so on um i think one of the challenges that we have today is how splintered and atomized we all are and i i actually think that kind of co a common language or a, a common vision is actually really hard to to pin down um yeah yeah that, that's i think that's a really productive conversation there a question for you Katie I think this is for you it's a question close to my heart too from Nicole Secon we've seen in the past few decades the erosion of pu public spaces as privatization and capitalism increasingly replaces libraries community centers etc with the advent of populism and mass movements how can we use the, the moment to demand the construction of public spaces public and radical art Huge question. It's difficult, you know, it's a, it, it's a question with no clear answer, obviously, because otherwise we'd be doing it. So I wonder if one of the things that I've, that, that sort of speaks to something that sort of came into my mind when Julia was speaking before, and maybe to this, it's about issues of kind of local. I think that we have, we're living in a time where we're so aware of, the world and spaces outside our immediate environment and um, other, you know, global cities. I live in Exeter and I think a lot about London. I mean, I'm from London, so all my family's there, so maybe that's why. But, you know, you think a lot about spaces that you aren't in. And I think that that leads to certain levels of inaction in in the local because we are fighting for you know sometimes you feel uh, there's these global issues how can my you know dissatisfaction with my local amenities or whatever ever possibly be more important than climate change or you know what's happening in Venezuela or, or, or whatever it is so some of that is maybe about coming back to the local level and when we're all allowed out again you know looking around and surveying what it is that that is in your immediate local space and what you would like that to be like and finding means to demand that um I know that I've got colleagues in in the drama department at University of Exeter for example who've set up were dissatisfied with the um the lack of of arts and, and radical theatre spaces so set up an initiative called Make Tank um which is a uh, ad hoc pop-up theatre space that is in Exeter City Centre. And so I think there are ways that people can, can you know, make these these yeah. very local differences. So, so to me, that maybe is, is a way into that question. Yeah. I don't know. 
satisfactory though. I think there is. I'm so sorry, we've totally run out of time and I haven't had a chance to ask you this question from J. Alfonso Diaz about might this turn out to be the roaring 20s of the 21st century? And all I'm going to say is I hope so, Alfonso Diaz. I really hope so. Maybe Katie's projects will get us there. Thank you so much to Antoine Picon, Katie Bezik and Julia King and to you for really fabulous, important questions. If you'd like to hear more from the forum, you can find details on our webpage and uh, you can find out about some of our future events go to blogs.lse.ac.uk forward slash the forum or look for us at LSE public events you can subscribe to our podcast there and rifle through our archive and coming up you can join the next gathering of the philosophers book club which is Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich which is on Tuesday the 16th of February or you can join me again on Monday the 22nd of February to think about resilience thank you so much goodbye <laughs>